So this bolt of lightning shot across the universe and inspired me with the idea that we have to do a podcast. And that's what I wanted to tell you. We should do a podcast. Okay, bye. Okay, I'm recording. Um, welcome to Feature Creep, colon. <laughs> Built-in microwave, semicolon. Semicolon. Uh, I don't even know where to start. Let's just call this, um, <laughs> we'll call this transhumanism. Anyway, we're going to, you know, okay. the title will be on the, you know, you'll read the title before you listen to this, probably. Right. So um, right. we'll we'll think of something. It'll be emergent. But let's talk about transhumanism. And uh, you pointed out when I was just bringing this up that you had uh, read about um, France. So I'm just reading this article by Popular Mechanic, and the title is "Welp, comma France just <laughs> yes, you found the right one. France just signed off on cyborg soldiers." Um, <laughs> That's like what I woke up to yesterday. Yeah, <laughs> day before I was like, oh. oh. <laughs> so, um, which is obviously. I'm sure that brings up lots of terrifying science fiction <laughs> ideas to mind. Um, now, uh, to be clear, France isn't currently developing bio-augmented biotechnology sol- soldiers or, you know, uh, growing humans in vats at this point. But they've basically, and I, you know, I, I'm definitely, I haven't read the the law to the letter, so I don't know like what limits it goes to, but. Um, fundamentally, the idea is that France was like, yeah, well, we are going to allow, you know, bionic or cyborg enhancements mm-hmm. um, in the military as of now. When I read when I read this article and then some subsequent stuff, most of what it sounded like, like I found myself saying out loud, like, oh, OK, yeah. this is drugs, 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 drugs. Like, yes performance enhancing drugs mostly is what they yep. were willing to cop to and it didn't yep. go into like uh, you know ocular implants or like neural right. blah, blah 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 some crazy string of words that we would string together and make a thing up about it right yes yeah. um so most of it sounded basically like they were just doping people but yes yeah <laughs> um and obviously that's not where it's gonna stop right Where's my robot arm <laughs> yeah so there is um you know, and this dovetails in with the um, the idea that there are some there's some seems to be some evidence or maybe hearsay um, about China using CRISPR to oh. uh, to basically like gene hack their soldiers, or they have a program that is doing research in that direction. Um, yeah, I don't I I don't know. Like this is definitely borderline conspiracy theory, although like just on the face of it. Um, you can understand that uh, we do know that CRISPR is able to, you know, CRISPR is a really highly powerful method for doing gene splicing and being able to modify or, you know, modifying an existing organism and modify their genes. Now, did you hear recently about like the germline editing and how that went real bad real quick? I did not hear that, no. Um, uh, I mean, I'm not I surprised. I got to make a note but, to like bring yeah. it up. I have to find the the actual like we'll have to about that. Yeah, it was like it was, <laughs> it was like horror show ugly. Like, uh oh, uh huh. <laughs> Don't do that. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> and I can't remember what nation it was that 
um, the research was conducted in, I, I want to say China, but it was yeah. in Asia and I, I, it may not have been China. So it may right. have been North Korea or something like that. But uh, they they used CRISPR to do germline editing and it went like horribly awry. And so the reason that that was even allowed to happen was because it took place in a place with far less stringent ethics um than the United States or Europe, for example, and right, right, that would not have that would not have happened here, yeah. um, under current standards. But uh, it basically confirmed the like, oh dear God, don't open the Pandora's box. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it was like swift and uh-huh. unmistakable. Like this is a terrible idea. <laughs> don't do this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think my one like my biggest issue with um. A lot of the the sort of bioengineering is that um, I don't think that we have a good handle on how organisms exist in an ecosystem, and so mm-hmm. it's really it's perfectly fine for you to have like you know let's just talk about sing, single cell um, gene splicing or single cell like modifications at this point. So you're talking about like let's say you want to um, create a a yeast for brewing beer. And you want it to be like particularly effective at doing like some like you know makes more alcohol per unit or something like that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you you kind of do some research and you figure out what genes need to be modified so that it it can express the correct proteins to do that task. Mm-hmm. So you do that and that's fine. And now you have this yeast. And so in your clean lab with no other with you know it's it's pretty removed from its natural ecosystem, right? Um, it doesn't, it's not exposed to other organisms around it for the most part. So now you have this yeast and it's fine. You throw it in a vat and you make some alcohol and you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. Right. But now you put it into the wild and that because of the way that, that new protein expression is going on, it turns out there's all these other single cell organisms that coexist in the world that are like, oh my God, this is like easy prey. And they just decimate your population of yeast because now they can exploit that like overabundance of um, alcohol production or whatever Mm -hmm. it is because, and that's where I think that, um, you know, you, you start to modify an organism and then you put it back in the wild and where you gave it an advantage in one direction, you forget that there's an, an entire host constantly onslaughting that, that organism. Like as humans, like we're constantly under attack by other microcellular organisms you know right uh, single cell organisms and bacteria and funguses and and viruses and things yeah this is inside of you like inside of you on the surface of your skin floating through the air going into your nose and in your eyes and your mucous membranes and And, under your fingernails and in your teeth like around your teeth and in your bloodstream and in your organs and all this stuff which is why it's hysterical and like absurd to like it's so absurd for people to like try and sterilize their environment outside of like a hospital or something like that where it's like oh i'm gonna Clorox everything in my house. You're not accomplishing anything. Well, also, it's anytime <laughs> you do that, what you're doing is you're um you're upsetting the homeostasis, right? Like you're basically yeah. unbalancing a situation where it's like we were in a like a sort of precarious balance between being consumed alive by the, you know, the single cell fungus or the the sort of funguses and and molds and things around us because you know, we're able to exist, but then as soon as you push it in one direction, this is the problem with bleaching shit or, you know, using bio, uh, pro- antibiotics and stuff. Because in. as soon as you like wipe the slate clean, some other organisms like, oh my God, all these free resources with no competition, mm-hmm. and then they yep. just explode. And that's what yeah, happens so- with your, your body. Like when you take 
antibiotics. It's antibiotics. Like, it exactly. kills the That's thing. And then you're just like another organism comes along and it's like, well, there's no competition here. So now I'm going to infiltrate your entire gut and all of you. And now you've got this other infection. So because of some recent conversations we've had, this reminds yeah. me of an analogous conversation where we were having about like there's the shitty situation you're known familiar with. Yes. Or you could open yourself up to a completely random one by getting rid of the situation you do have and taking the next thing that happens along. Right. And like. If yeah. you have <laughs> and I, I, the, the balancing act of biology, is your yes. situation so bad that you want to risk something even worse? Like <laughs> Right. And and that's, you know, and I'm not to, I, I'm not necessarily like anti change or that we shouldn't be doing research in this direction. Right. I'm very much pro understanding and knowledge. Um, and obviously, uh, I, like, you know, we also have the other issue of like how ethical do humans behave and like, you know, our, how do we behave with ourselves and all of the problems of like, you know, when you expose a certain knowledge that provides a lot of power, how does that get exploited? And, you know, mm -hmm. anyway, um, I, I wanted to steer the conversation towards the topic, which is that um, we wanted to talk about transhumanism and posthumanism. And I think yes. before we do that, we need to talk about humanism because we need to understand what, what is that? The starting point. The starting point. Um, right. You know, what does it mean? You can't know what a transhuman is until you know what a human is or transhumanism until you know what humanism is. Right. So. Right. Um, um, yeah. Yes. So we should do that. Uh, I before I get any further in, down that rabbit hole with you. Yes. I found the thing. So. Yes. Late 2018. Mm hmm. Um, there uh, was a Chinese researcher um, who claims that he created the world's first genetically edited babies, meaning germline editing. So we yeah. should say, I feel like we should say something about germline yes. editing versus other type of like editing. Yes, absolutely. Um, so like how to explain this in a coherent way for people who maybe don't understand anything at all about genetic engineering. Um so germline editing is really scary because what it does is it precisely alters the DNA of cells um, that are in the very front end stages of an organism being created. So um, he, this researcher took these these uh embryos and he used crispr mm -hmm. to alter a gene called ccr5 and that's a tiny little stretch of dna that can make people resistant to being infected with hiv okay so people who uh, this is known people with certain yep. versions of the ccr5 gene um rarely become infected with hiv even when they're exposed to it because they just have a naturally spontaneously occurring resistance to HIV infection. And that is evident in the CCR5 gene, like gotcha. that, right. that version of the gene. So what this Chinese scientist did is he genetically altered the CCR5 gene in the embryos in the germline, the very starting set of DNA that these embryos came with. He edited that CCR5 gene um, so that... Uh, these children, these twins, mm -hmm. 
would not be susceptible to HIV infection because they carry the version of the the desired CCR5 gene. Right. Um, so uh, I, I'm reading now, I'm quoting uh, this scientist. He said the father of the twins was infected with HIV and the mother was not. He aimed to genetically engineer babies that would be resistant to HIV. And so you think, oh, that's such a like noble thing or that's such a, what a great idea to make these children um safe from infection from their father right 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 um but uh he had experimented on mice and then monkeys and then finally on human embryos that could never ever develop before he tried the method on a viable embryo and he claimed to have done this without anyone's knowledge because to to do this would violate it basically universally pissed off everyone in the right, scientific community right. when he yeah. did this. Um, because when you edit the germ line, you are effectively changing the very basic identity of the thing that you're altering. Yes, right. Um. And so this gets really quickly thorny when you think about, well, if we just knew what section of the DNA coded for, um, like, uh, ALS disease, we could eliminate ALS disease, right? And you're like, right. that sounds great because there don't seem to be any benefits to living with ALS whatsoever, right? Right. And then you're like, yeah, and we could extend that to something like, I don't know some other chromosomal abnormality or gene issue like Down syndrome. And then you're like, but wait a second, this is starting to sound like eugenics. Yes, right. Where you're just going to say, well, if there's something we don't like in retrospect about a person, we can make sure that going forward, no one ever has to be like that ever again. But this only takes into consideration or it, it forces you to take into consideration who's deciding what is an acceptable or agreeable trait. Yeah. Um, who the, gets treated and who doesn't. Right. Like, I mean, it just explodes into like nightmare scenarios. Yeah. And this is um, a long time ago. We did a podcast where we talked about Chesterton's fence. And yes. a lot of this is like 100 percent Chesterton's fence. There is mm -hmm. a fence. And. And we should not allow you to remove it until you know why it's there. Right. Just because it goes over the road and it's inconvenient to you doesn't mean it doesn't serve a purpose. And that's where um, I, I think there's a lot of like misconception about how biology works and how, um, you know, we have, we have all this DNA and we have all this, you know, these gene expressions and the way the whole system works. And every day we get, you know, more, more enlightened to how things are working for us as humans and how we fit in our, you know, our biological niche here on earth. But, um, I just, you know, the fact that we've come up with tools that allow us to start taking down fences before we know why they're there is a little bit nerve wracking to me. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's like, yeah, but those fences might be really important. Like I know, right. I know that it goes across a road that you think is like, you know, it's inconvenient every time you get to the fence, you have to climb over the fence or go around or go through the gate or whatever. But, um, until Why you know, even have this fence. Yeah. But there might be a really good reason really that that fence, reason. you know, from an evolutionary point of view exists. 
So anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. This, there's one other thing about this. This yes. this researcher, this scientist who altered the embryos. Yeah. He did this for seven couples during their fertility treatments. Uh-huh. And one of those fertility treatments resulted in a pregnancy. So in other words, he used a common fertility method. Yes. And then genetically altered the DNA in the embryos. Uh-huh. And he paid he said he paid for treatment himself. So this is like this is an ethical conflict of interest. So yep. in other words, uh like this quote, uh, FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb also denounced the work. Certain uses of science should be judged intolerable and cause scientists to be cast out. The use of CRISPR to edit human embryos or germline cells should fall into that bucket. Um, the like consent processes and what people were consenting to, like if this, if these families were desperate to have children, and this scientist said, "Well, I'll do these fertility treatments on you for free." That's where the conflict of interest comes in yeah. because he has a reason already for wanting to do something and he's using desperate people as a means to achieve the end that he's after, which is editing right. Right. in a way that he knew was unethical because yeah. he covered it up on purpose because he knew that he wouldn't receive support for his behavior. Right. So it's just really thorny really quickly with this stuff. There's also other types of gene therapy that don't have anything to do with the germline. And yeah. those are like complicated and I don't understand that much about them and I don't have any information about them in front of me, so I'm not going to get into it. Yeah, I'm well we can explain it wrong. We can circle we can get there. Let's circle back to that so, one. <laughs> right. So not not all genetic engineering is bad. Most of it's just perfectly fine and like it's very like well, it's not it's, a roll of the dice and you're not going to create like some yeah, strange I mean, half human from an ethical point of view um when you are a fully formed human adult and then you make the choice to modify your own genes. Right. That's a whole different can of worms. Um, right. Like they're they're doing a, like incredible work on sickle cell anemia right now yeah. using gene therapy and it apparent it's working. So they're they're able to re- achieve like remission or a resolution of sickle cell anemia in adults who are having gene therapy. Um, but obviously, again, that's like that's after the fact. That's something that they understand the risks, the p- right. potential risks and benefits. They're able to give consent because it's their own person, like, um, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not changing the DNA identity of who they are. Like if you edit some of these germline, what you're saying is that the DNA that they carry forward as they develop will not match the DNA that was donated by both of their parents. Right. Right. So you are in in essence creating a, a whole completely new individual um who does not trace directly back to the donors of the DNA that resulted in them potentially being a person in the first place. Right. All right. Which is, which is crazy and weird. All right. So let's go back in time a little bit. Um mm-hmm. prior to this moment where we're talking about um gene modification and and all of the things one one can possibly have happened to them um so let's talk about humanism for a minute so humanism uh and i'm quoting from the wikipedia article on humanism and it is december 14th so humanism is a philosophical stance that emphasizes the value and agency of human beings individually and collectively so that's kind of the really really broad strokes right and um 
basically humanism is the idea like some people like to think of it in the way that it's like you know it's kind of maybe non-religious and secular at this point and it's more like you know many people who um want to distance themselves from the uh the term atheism but are otherwise atheistic which is to say without theism um oftentimes will ascribe to being like a humanist they believe Mm -hmm. in humanity right um so that's a take on it but um humanism has you know it it goes back in history to uh you know there's various philosophers um and you know you may know more about this than i um but uh humanism is oftentimes kind of just this uh like in the french enlightenment it was more of an ideological use of the term um so like in 1765 the author of an anonymous article in a french enlightenment periodical spoke of the general love of humanity a virtue here here through hitherto quite nameless among us in which we will venture to call humanism for the time has come to create a word for such a beautiful and necessary thing um Mm. you know and this is kind of the idea of of uh humanism kind of goes into the idea of like you know what does it mean to it 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 highlights like the human condition right and i mean obviously that means different things to different people (laughs) (laughs) Um, yes but uh there's definitely um thoughts around you know in the wikipedia article is really great and i'm just going to skim through it we don't have to like get too into it but um Mm -hmm. There's there's kind of predecessors like Confucianism would possibly be kind of considered a, a, a predecessor uh, where it kind of basically places humans as the central focal point of the philosophy as opposed to other religions where like, for instance, you know, religions I'm more familiar with like Catholicism or Christianity where it's like there's the focal point is on a an other, like an other more supreme being. Um, right. So, yes. uh, you know, Confucian, Confucius, Confucianism, mm-hmm. Confucianism, um, mm-hmm. uh, various like, you know, maybe in India, various sort of like philosophies around Buddhism um, probably would kind of fit into that category a little bit. Um, I it, In the Wikipedia article, it even mentions that there's some early Islamic philosophy um, in like that has occasional skepticism and and secularism and and more humanistic ideas of individuality um so uh the icelandic yeah there were like there were a number of philosophers who during like the inquisition for example and Mm -hmm. like (laughs) the really um scary periods where if you did any thinking outside of what the church told you to think about they would like burn you at the stake Um, and they would make atheistic or humanistic arguments, but they would couch them really weirdly in a lot of like flowery, excessive explaining Uh that sort of disguised what it was they were talking about. Right. Um, Right. Which makes reading it (laughs) complicated. I'm sure complicated especially when you're like i feel like what you're trying to say here i it's so unfortunate that you couldn't just come out and say what you had to say without right burying it in a bunch of language around covering your tracks and sucking up to the church yes yeah right (laughs) to to put it a certain way yes Um, yeah yeah so 
Yeah, there was always a displacement of the love for humanity to the thing that created humanity, like God or the church or whatever else. I mean, not always. I I don't mean it to be like universal, but um, sure. Yeah, there was. That's um, later on after uh like the wikipedia article if you read down further points out it says during the french revolution and soon after in germany by the left hegelians uh hegel was a a philosopher Uh um the hegelians in germany and the french in the french revolution humanism began to refer to an ethical philosophy centered on humankind without attention to the transcendent or supernatural right right Yeah. yeah and and it's definitely um yeah, so it's it it's kind of uh, it's it's also like I want to be clear that when we talk about humanism, um, we're definitely putting the caveat that there is a really broad body of research and philosophy and discussion about what it means and what um, you know, and it may mean different things depending on context and what people are talking about. Um, and I want to make sure that as we talk about transhumanism, we're like. we've at least put some groundwork so as the listener if you're listening uh, you know i'm assuming you are listening to this because i (laughs) yeah you can tell because of the way it is you can tell because of the way it is right um as you're listening to this i want you to keep that or i'd like to keep that in mind because um a lot of the discussion around transhumanism is about uh, what it means to go beyond humanism right like that's kind of the nature of it so Mm -hmm. um yeah, so let's see. Is there any other points um, we want to get into uh, about it? Um, no, it's basically just like this. This I feel like it's the secular appreciation of the awe of like how fucking crazy it is that there's even people. Yes, yes, right. Um, like the humanism i think overlays or overlaps a lot with um just like an appreciation for the natural world and like the fact that there's this insane universe we basically almost know nothing about and we somehow all live on a rock that's spinning around a burning sun and like it's just bizarre and the fact that we're even here is amazing and like that's enough right right Yes. Yeah. That's enough. That's how I think of it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely, um, you know, that gets into like my personal worldview of, uh, you know, being an atheist, right. And, and not, Mm -hmm. um, not subscribing to other, like anything other than what's, you know, verifiable in front of me and, um, and finding Mm -hmm. plenty of solace in how amazing everything is. Um, you know, it's both terrifying and wonderful and all of the things. So, um, Yeah. yeah, Uh, and in this context, I think that might also be important because we're going to, um, kind of segue into transhumanism, which is what we were kind of getting at, um, right with, with when we were talking about, um, basically genetic engineering and super soldiers and by, you know, bionic upgrades and, you know, cyber, cyber, what do they call them? (laughs) Cyborgs, cyborgs cyborgs and all of the things and super soldiers and all the craziness um my uh my grandma had her lenses removed because she had cataracts yeah and they gave her synthetic um they replaced her her biological lenses in her eyes with right um prosthetics yeah and my cousin was like 
Have you seen Graham's new bionic eye? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's fascinating. It's um, I want a I want a bionic eye. Right? Yeah, there. It's pretty cool. Um, I don't think technically it was bionic because it was just a prosthesis and not like uh technologically enhanced in some way. Like she didn't, you know, she didn't have like a pop up display in her eyeball. Right. Right. Is what I'm hoping for personally. Right. Right. Some kind of world overlay that gives you even more information on what you're looking at. and Yes, yeah. exactly. Like the little like menu the down uh-huh. the side and yep. you like get all your like vital statistics and like measurements around of your surroundings or whatever. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. A little map overlay with points of egress that's like determined <laughs> from the architectural shit on file on the internet that it scrubbed. Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. Threat assessment and, and so that's on. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. I'm going to need that for the French soldiers. Yes. Um, so transhumanism is the idea of um, basically it advocates for the transformation of the human condition, right? So uh, oftentimes, so again, from the Wikipedia article on December 14th, uh, 2020 is when we doing this just for citation um so transhumanism is a philosophical movement that advocates for the transformation of the human condition by developing and making widely available sophisticated technologies able to greatly modify or enhance human intellect and physiology so basically you know upgrade your shit right like that's kind of where we're we're talking about here is the idea that transhumanism is about um advocating for advances in health and science and anything that makes the human condition a better thing. So for instance, Mm -hmm. those lenses, like we're already, you know, one could argue that your grandmother was a transhuman, right? Because she had upgrades from her existing condition. Um, And, and so that gets, you know, that's kind of in the state, in the case of like, you know, someone having like a wooden peg leg versus like a, you know, a pretty enhanced, like, you know, composite material spring loaded, um, you know, running leg. Uh, there's, you can see how it goes from like, Hey, here's a crutch to here's like an upgrade. Like the fact that, um, you know, that they have to have a separate category for runners who have different feet. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and that's, um it's it's cool like i think it's it's um i'm sure it's harder for the older generations but i think as the newer generations come along they seem to be more accepting of that and accepting of the fact that um you know changing yourself is something that people want to do like we all right. you know um like you know from tattoos and hair coloring and ear piercings or piercings to um you know much more crazy body modifications to um I I definitely I think uh there should be we should make it clear that we're both not talking about and also talking about trans like trans people um like you know gender change is a big issue oh, yes. um and that's not from my point of view that's not separate from this that's part of this right it's about being able to be like actually i know who i am and now as i get you know as we move forward with advances in technology and stuff i can be more that person and Mm -hmm. i like i don't i didn't want to maybe open that to have i mean we should obviously like talk about um the social issues um and they face a lot of social issues if you're you know 
trying to change your gender and be publicly out about it, it's it's a big problem today. But um, I but that falls under this umbrella as far as I'm concerned because that's all all of those things are. Um, I just want to be clear that transhumanism is not trans. If that makes sense, like it's not it like that's a specific thing. Like that's something that's going on as a social movement and. Right. So when somebody when you're having like a conversation or you're out somewhere and you run into somebody who identifies as trans. Yes. They're probably referring to as transgender and not transhuman. Yes. Right. Um, Because that's where the current vernacular around the conversation is. Yes. Um, Yeah. And that's about and I just want to keep that clear as being a social um, a social discussion that is right is important um, and does dovetail into transhumanism. But when you talk about transhumanism, probably it's more of a dry philosophical, like maybe some kind of nerdy sci-fi stuff um, as opposed to specifically about transgender. Um, right. If that makes sense. Um, anyway, just to be clear, I'm very in support of transgender rights and all of that. So let's anyway, segue. Um, so <laughs> so transhumanism um, is basically this idea of going from, you know, a sort of standard human to something more than that, like having your lenses augmented or changed or having, um, you know, some kind of like, you know, implant or something that gives you some ability beyond what you would have as a human being, um, as a standard human. So, uh, this, this particular, um, topic has been the study of science fiction for a long time. And, um, I think it dates back, like, I think that there's a particular, brand of or or sort of theme of science fiction often referred to as cyberpunk which is probably where um this is definitely a lot of a lot of our current our current stuff that we're talking about like fits really well with that so um like yeah like it's it's interesting because the uh, transhumanism on wikipedia is like a huge ideology series yes yeah um which like you see also with other so it's like it it's a fairly well developed topic um which I think is really interesting because I didn't realize that it was that well connected or intertwined. I mean like there's all kinds of like the 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 Wikipedia thing is like overviews, outline of transhumanism, transhuman, transhumanism in fiction. Yes. Yep. Abolitionism, extropianism, immortalism, postgenderism, postpoliticism, singularitarianism. Technogaianism, yeah. anarcho-transhumanism, libertarian transhumanism, democratic and techno-progressivism. <laughs> um, and then there's a bunch of organizations. Foresight Institute, Humanity Plus, Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. That rings my bell. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's, uh, I just, uh, I'm, I'm kind of like ex- explaining this only because I just realized this myself and I'm so surprised that this is so well developed. Like I didn't think there was this much written on it. Yeah. There's um, it's one of the reasons when I brought this up as a a possible Mm -hmm. topic series for us, I thought, you know, there's a lot of information here that people might find interesting and I I certainly do. And I thought, well, let's just talk about it while we're, while we're diving in and and finding out about it. Um, Yeah. uh, Come on this transhumanist journey with us. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, And, and that's kind of uh, I, I keep trying to remember to do this in all our podcasts now is to remind people that you can actually get a hold of us um, and participate. So if you wanted to write us an email, you could email us. Um, so 
you can send an email to Dana, our executive assistant. That's D-A-N-A at fcbm.io. And if you email her, she'll get back to you pretty quickly and also um, you know, make sure we get a hold of you. Or, you know, she'll route route you to the correct to the correct department. Um <laughs> if you have questions or thoughts or ideas or comments or things you'd like us to like, you know, like things we haven't considered. Um because it is it's a super broad 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 topic um yeah it it's all encompassing in many ways and i think as time marches forward it will become more and more relevant um as i was saying like we're talking about um you know there's transgender rights movements going on right now which in many ways i would argue is a part of this it's a part of the transhuman experience right because those people are seeking to um better their own lives through both social acceptance and also possibly through um, actual biological modification in order to feel better and be more more whole from their point of view. Um, yeah. And uh, but again, I can't. I don't want to speak for them. Like I, you know, there's plenty of literature and voices about this that I would encourage other people to go listen to. Um, but uh, anyway, the the post we or should, the tr- yeah. we should share some. Oh, we definitely should. Um, I did. We can put it in the notes. For yeah, that. we could put something in the notes. Um, and I don't. I mean, I I'm a little bit. I have a couple of people I follow on Twitter, and I don't know who would be like a very good person to recommend. Um, but you know, also yeah, you we'll can, figure it out. Yeah, uh, maybe I'm, we'll have some recommendations for you. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, or if you're a fan of the show and you want to write in, if you write into our email, like we, you know, we'll rec- you know make recommendations based on who you think we maybe should be. Um, yeah, you know, we can start a Google up. Doc. Yeah, we can start a Google Doc. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, um, yeah. So transhumanism. Uh, oh, but cyberpunk. So. Uh, right. I think the reason um, I thought I was just thinking about uh, there's if you're if you play video games at all, then you're probably aware that the new video game Cyberpunk 2077 was super hyped this year and then was just released. Um, and like all video games, in my opinion, that have been super hyped, it was clearly disappointing. Um, but, you know, I that aside, uh, Cyberpunk as a science fiction uh as like a genre um, of science fiction has been uh, around for a long time. And one of the, like one of the canonical sort of early works around cyberpunk genre was uh, William Gibson's Neuromancer, which was published in 1984. Um, And it's, it's basically cyberpunk is typically the world of like high technology and fast you know fast computer and like virtual reality and like hacking and and um but one of the things that's often featured in cyberpunk is the idea of like man and machine so people who are augmented with machines and um you know people who have like bionic upgrades or biological modifications that include things like extra memory for your brain or you know neuro interfaces to a computer and things like that and it definitely as as it went on it really explored a lot of the the ideas of what it means to be um like what does it mean to be conscious what does it mean to be human what does it mean to interface with a computer what does it mean to entirely give up your biological body and still be in you know a conscious existence and all of those things happen um 
or get explored in various science fiction works through um, either through William Gibson or other art, art, uh, authors of that. Like Philip K. Dick um, could also probably be argued to be one of the early kind of uh, cyberpunk novelists, like definitely um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep was kind of, uh, mm. you know, spawned the um, the early Blade Runner, you know, Blade Runner the movie, which has like a lot of the kind of cyberpunk vibe to it, um, you know, with like, you know, they have the replicants, which are these like artificial right. human beings, right, or artificial androids, um, you know, and, and all of these like explore, like a lot of the literature is just basically around the exploration of what it means to be human and, and the human experience. Uh, so Cyberpunk 2077 came out. Um, this is just basically like a first person high, high profile, you know, AAA studio video game. Um, mm -hmm. And you play as a, you know, first person's perspective. You play as a, a mercenary um, who basically has access to play in this world of body modifications and upgrades and, and, you know, corporate espionage and all of the, the things that come with that trope. Um, yeah. you know, hyper weapons <laughs> and hyper violence and all of the things. Um, mm -hmm. and so anyway, I just, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. So, uh, but transhumanism is not necessarily, um, the idea like it doesn't advocate for that world right like that's not the idea isn't for human suffering and and like dystopia um that's that's a separate issue i think kind of the the idea of as a philosophy transhumanism is basically as we talked about it's advocating for the 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 lifting up of the human condition right the idea of like making everybody's lives better um and i think one of the things that we should probably talk about is um ethics like it's it's hugely tied to ethics like at what point is it okay you know um i think as a as a world like culturally i think we're kind of getting to a better understanding that consent is really important um you know like yeah. in that story you were just talking about like where where it one of the ethical problems of that doctor paying for the um treatments was that um, the the idea of ethics gets a little, or the idea of consent gets a little bit blurred because it is it consent when you your choice is to do this, like they the only way they're going to have access to these fertility treatments is through this program of having their their child's DNA modified, right? Like that's yeah. the, that, that becomes the question of like, well, then is it actually consent? Did they have yeah. a choice where they could do it themselves or they could have this thing done? No, they had a choice of you can have it done for free and thereby have the ability to actually afford to have it done or you can fuck off and do something else. And so it becomes, um, that's, that's one of the big ethical issues around, um, I think transhumanism, the idea of like basically anytime you are um, making modifications to yourself or to someone else, um, that's, that's the question. Like, do they want them and do they know, do they know what they're getting themselves into? Yeah. Um, informed consent. Informed consent. That's another big problem. Like, you know, um, I, 
you know, even even if he wasn't paying for it, were they able to fully understand what they were asking for the, you know, or what what he was offering in these modifications of these genes? Right. Like I it's interesting. I would love to know like with that Chinese doctor, I would love to know was he working at a facility that these people happened to come to? And he would have been their doctor regardless of whether or not he had this um, clandestine plot to edit a germline. Like, like it, the one article said that he treated seven different families and one of them was successful at producing children who are now alive in the world. And they are, they both have, one of them has a single copy and another has two copies of the gene that makes them HIV yeah. resistant. Right. So, like, I wonder... I wonder so many things. It raises so many questions for me. Did they know that he was going to do any kind of genetic modifications on their embryos? And did they agree to it? Did he tell them what the modification was and for that reason they went along with it? Did they not have any idea and he figured it wouldn't matter because he was doing them a favor? Like, there are just so many so many details that I would love to know. Yeah. Like, how did, how did we get here? Like, how long ago did you premeditate this? plan mm -hmm. um like it's just so crazy uh anyway like the other crazy thing about doing this kind of stuff is that like crispr aside it's actually not and i think we've talked about this it's not hard to do genetic engineering just as a, a thing that you can do in a lab it's not hard i mean right right yeah there's so you don't need yeah all kinds you don't need like a nuclear reactor to do it you don't need a security clearance you can order the stuff to do it online i mean like it's not inaccessible at all by any means and it's the the really hard science and some of the math is a little tricky so you might need to you know be educated in that in order to be successful but the physical process of like doing the science is this isn't yeah this hard. isn't a this isn't like um you know the issue with like nuclear proliferation where it's much easier to police because in order to make um, like weapons grade nuclear, you know, product, you need massive a facility, massive facilities with giant, yeah. giant machines in order to achieve the level of purity that is needed in order to create those nuclear reactions. And right. so now we're talking about like, you know, like, I, for my um, for my graduation, I sent out a like a, a notice of graduation that I included a science experiment you can do at home, which is basically um, <sighs> ex extracting DNA from strawberries. And, yes. And now, like, you know, the reality of it is, you use some dish soap and a couple of other common household, you know, equipment, and you end up with snot because you know DNA is actually this really long molecule, right? And when you kind of unwind it from the cellular uh, nucleus you end up with these right. long stranded sort of strands strands that you can't see so it just makes a sort of gelatinous snot like material it's gross mm -hmm. but but that like is the okra. DNA, like okra yeah but that is the dna and um and the the reality is is that when we're talking about things like crispr and other other tools for ma manipulating dna um in an in a living organism you can you can get a lot of these things. You can both make the reagents necessary yourself. You can oftentimes like order kits online. 
Um, and you can literally like sit in your kitchen in an afternoon and yep. make a modified um, bacteria. Yep. Uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that I had considered as a career line was making yeast for brewing. Like, you know, making yeast lines for brewing Oh, that's beer. really interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's a company. We'd be good at that. I think we would be good at it. I think it'd be fun. And I think it's something, um, I, it's definitely something I've been keeping in my in my orbit as an idea. Um, cell really? culture is really, really fun thing to do. And, um, and there's ways, like the cool thing about, um, this is one of the things I think like people don't, not everyone understands is that, um, gene gene manipulation versus say um uh what's it called um you know leveraging natural selection in order to breed uh mm -hmm. you know specific organisms so for instance um you can use uh selection to when you're har harvesting and or culturing yeast um, their life cycle is so quick that you can start to select for specific properties in a yeast culture really quickly, like mm. in days, right? Because they can go yeah. through generations over a couple of days and you can pick out, you know, you can isolate parts of the culture and the colony that are exhibiting the behavior you want or the trait that you're looking for and then isolate them and then, and you know, basically produce more of those. And, um, and so this is kind of the... It's a genetic engineering that humans have been doing their entire existence. Like that's why we have right. things like bananas and potatoes and wheat and cats and dogs corn. and cows and corn and pigs and sheep and yeah, corn especially a big one. Especially um, <laughs> wouldn't exist without people. Yeah, yeah. So fussing with it, right? Because um, yeah, it's it's really fascinating. If you haven't had an opportunity to look at this, it's really interesting to go look at the wild types of foods that we eat, domesticated foods. Um, mm -hmm. Like domesticated corn is so different from the wild type of maize that is just, it's mind blowing, like how different it looks. Um, yeah. And, you know, wheat and rice and all of these like major staple crops are just really, really different from their, their sort of wild um, variants. It's really interesting. Yeah. Like there's, um, I, there's got to be the same type of thing in every sort of crop right now. But I know, for example, in corn, they've genetically modified some sorts of corn to be to yield higher levels of the amino acid lysine. Yeah. So it's high, high lysine corn. Right. Um, and you do that because everything like everything that happens in your body is a result of your DNA being the recipe that your cells and your body organ systems and stuff follow in order to make the thing happen. Right. So like if you have blonde hair, that's because there's a chunk of your DNA that says that you should have blonde hair. The, you know, like it's the, it's very analogous to me to like making, um, you know, like a chocolate chip recipe or an oatmeal raisin recipe. They're both cookies, but <clears throat> when you read the recipe, one's going to tell you, that to make this thing come out right, you need to put these ingredients in it in this order. And this one over here is going to give you slightly different ingredients in a different order. And they're going to come out looking kind of the same and kind of different. And they're going to taste kind of the same and kind of different because they're still cookies. But like the fact that you're a Ned and I'm a Meg is because there's a bunch of DNA that both of us share that are over things very generalized, like what your nose looks like and what shape it is and the fact that you even have a nose. Yeah. But the nose that I ended up with is different from the nose that you ended up with because each of our DNA in the section that codes for what your nose looks like is slightly different from each other. 
So you're like an oatmeal raisin cookie and I'm like a chocolate chip cookie. But Fuck oddly you, I don't enough, have we are exactly the same size. <laughs> Yes. I'll yes. be raisin. I like oatmeal raisin. I'll be I oatmeal actually, raisin. I do like. I chocolate. like oatmeal raisin as well. Um, like good I'll ones. Be, I'll be twelve extra dark chocolate cookies eaten before <laughs> Thanksgiving. <laughs> and I'll uh, see you in yes. three days. And I'll see you in three days as you um, recover from your coma. Yes. Um, so, like the you, if you change the recipe, yeah, you change the end result or the result going forward of whatever that recipe puts yes. out whatever yeah. out, whatever the output is so right. i'm the output of the meg recipe and you're the output of the ned recipe and we could change our recipes if we wanted to and you can change the recipes of other things that have dna and yeah. lots of stuff has dna and like, i think i think what um when i was a kid i always didn't really i always felt like people didn't really get the picture that um because when i when i started studying biochemistry in school i was i was kind of like i mean by then i had a pretty good handle on this but what what I wanted to say is it's not just DNA in your body. The thing is, so you're you're in you're made up of individual cells, and each cell has your DNA in it, right? It has a copy of the instruction manual. Yeah. And so every single cell, yeah. A lot of the gene therapies, um, it's not like it's not like you change the DNA in one cell and then all cells get a copy of it. What happens right. is you lo- like you change the DNA of localized cell types and things. So, you know, I, I'm just speaking off the cuff here and I don't know if this is an actual treatment, but one might imagine that you had some liver problem and so you would have a targeted gene therapy that attempts to change the bulk of the genes in your liver, right? And so when we're talking about changing genes, as Meg was saying, like genes, these strands of DNA code for specific protein molecules or specific molecules. And so, you know, your cells are these bags of molecules. They're bags of uh, lipid proteins that encompass, that hold water inside of them. And then right. in that watery soup, they have all of the these proteins that are mechanisms to both maintain the DNA and transcribe from the DNA to functional molecules. And so when you change that that segment of DNA to code for a different kind of molecule then when it's time to be encoded into a molecule then the mechanism in your cell basically translates that into that new molecule and so mm-hmm, that's how mm-hmm. you that's how you end up with mice that glow in the dark right right or um, um even uh less amusing but yes. potentially more um important yes uh there's a new this just happened in uh just reported in the early part of December about 10 days ago. Um so some people have sickle cell anemia yes. and the the DNA that results in sickle cell anemia impacts um the uh, the bone marrow in in people's bones, and so the problem that the problem that you see the the symptoms of sickle cell anemia are because the DNA in the person who presents sickle cell anemia has um, created kind of like faulty bone marrow. Um, right, right, because that's where your that's where your blood originates from. Yes, and so when it happens, like sickle cell, usually your red blood cells look like little smooshy little donuts, and they yep. kind of like float around and bump into each other and like bounce off of things. Um, and sickle cell anemia causes them to become almost like boomerang shaped, and they it's an extremely painful condition because your blood cells get like hung up inside of you. 
Right, right. And it causes all kinds of problems. It's all super- kinds of problems. It causes strokes, especially because yeah. there it causes traffic jams in your in your blood vessels. I um, sickle cell anemia has been one of the most fascinating things that I'd learned about when I was um, studying in school because there is some evidence to suggest that it's an adaptation to um, ward off malaria. Ah, because uh, interesting. Yeah, uh, let me just do a quick search here. So, people with uh, so sickle cell anemia um, creates those cells that you were talking about. The basically the um, you know the mis misshaped, no longer donut shaped, but they're like sickle right. shaped. And um, yeah, they're but like a- but having sickle cell having the anemia or the condition of having some of your cells be sickle cells uh, confers protection against mortality um, Mm -hmm. according to the one study between two to 16 months of life in Western Kenya. And so that's also why people who originate from countries where there's a lot of malaria, um, they are often more likely to have sickle cell anemia. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is again like comes back to my idea about the the Chesterton's fence, right? Which is yeah. to say that, um, like you were saying, it's like, well, you cl- okay, let's just get rid of sickle cell anemia so no one has it. And now, you know, one in ten people start dying again in those countries because we didn't solve the problem that that, that you know having sickle cell anemia was solving. Yeah, so the unintended consequences are staggering. Like, yeah, it's really, right. really dicey because the the scale of damage it could be human humongous yep yeah um i now that's obviously a very reductionist view of sickle cell anemia and it is a real problem and and what 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 we're talking about like what you're saying about how they are able to treat it in the bone marrow is amazing and they should right because that's the other thing yeah i'll I'll tell you even more about it so There's there's two doctors, doctor both Dr. Johns, Doctors John, the Doctors uh-huh. John, John Tisdale and Francis and um um John Francis John John LePook. LePook. John oh, nice. Yeah, John Tisdale and John LePook. And then there's a Dr. Francis Collins. So anyway, um Dr. Tisdale, Dr. John Tisdale and his collaborators created a gene that um can so in people, the gene that that is present the little chunk of the recipe for humanity in that person's cells that says whether or not they're going to wind up with sickle cell anemia is this tiny little chunk of DNA. Mm-hmm. And um, when you swap it out, you can use enzymes and cut that little chunk of DNA. And then you can replace that chunk of DNA with anything else that you want. So you could replace it with something that has a, a, a really terrible unintended effect because you could put gobbledygook in there and then the downstream consequences would be a biological organism that doesn't function well because the thing that makes their bone marrow work is not there at all. Um, Or you could replace it with a chunk of DNA from someone who has working bone marrow and who does not subsequently suffer from sickle cell anemia. So what these two doctors have done, or Dr. Tisdale did, is he took a section of DNA that correctly codes for bone marrow to produce healthy red blood cells. Mm -hmm. And they then have to figure out how to get that 
correct chunk of DNA, the desirable chunk of DNA into a cell into that patient. Right. Because that's where that cell will do the right thing and make the correct blood cells. And that's what you want to have happen. In fact, you want to have a lot of cells producing correct blood cells, red blood cells. And so you want to deliver a lot of this new genetic information to a lot of cells in the person who has sickle cell anemia. So you have to get some cells first. Right. And then you have to cut out the section of DNA from those cells that would... um, Encode for that. Uh, encode for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you would want to put in DNA that codes correctly. And so what they do is they insert the corrected gene um, into the HIV virus. Yeah. And then bone marrow stem cells are taken from a patient who has sickle cell anemia. Yeah. And those cells yeah. that they harvested from the person are infected with the HIV virus, but... Yeah. The HIV virus has been also like changed, right? Because we yeah. we changed it to put in the thing that we want to deliver to the bone marrow of the people with sickle cell anemia. While you're doing that, you can also um, cut out the bits of DNA that cause infection for people who become infected with HIV. And you replace that with the gene that's misspelled in the sickle cell disease. So when the HIV virus delivers information to your cells, yeah. they're not de- they're not delivering, they're like a taxi cab. Right, like the, they so you're, you've hijacked the virus you've to- You've hijacked the virus to, to inf- deliver something beneficial. Right. And any cell that gets infected with mm-hmm. that um, denatured HIV virus will subsequently become infected or will uptake and in, uh, incorporate the DNA that you want them to have. And then those cells will start producing blood cells that aren't viable cell. blood cells. That's amazing. Right. Yeah. And it's I working. didn't know that. And that is amazing. People are already doing it and they're seeing like dramatic and fairly rapid improvements in their pain and their like that's fantastic their organ systems yeah yeah so there's like lots of ways to do this so uh, in this case rather than editing a germline for people to prevent people in the future from getting sickle cell anemia you can just treat people who show up with it and then you don't end up with the like worrisome ethical implications of right right yeah changing a whole line of humanity yeah which may end up happening and i'm not necessarily against that but like that's a that's a much larger problem than one person that you can treat individually and they know what the risks are and they're okay with it um so anyway i just thought that was really interesting because this is happening like right now yes yes (laughs) if you know somebody with sickle cell anemia Tell them about this. Yeah. Tell them to go to the doctor because this is like really brand new. It just happened, but this is um, like there's it's it's expensive to treat people with sickle cell anemia, and it's a really bad quality of life for some people. So there, I can't imagine that there's going to be massive impediments to people being able to receive the treatment widely. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. Yeah, I mean, I it's um. It's pretty fantastic, and I, I'm really, I will be very interested to see how that evolves and how that hopefully, I mean, yeah. I, I didn't want to make this entirely about um, the, dev- the terrible state of healthcare in our country, but, um, <laughs> well, the thing is, like, it, it's that diet that like, that dualism of like, you know, having this amazing science going on and this amazing advances mm-hmm. in healthcare and then the entire lack of access to it from a massive part of the population. Um, right. That's, that's the part that just that 
that makes no sense to me in so many ways because um like you know for instance imagine if there were a um virus that got loose and started infecting a lot of the population and killing them and it didn't matter whether you were rich or poor you were still likely to get infected by it now imagine that scenario <laughs> just imagine and, and now if you had a healthcare system that had everyone had access to good healthcare and access to vaccines and you had good ex- like you had good execution of vaccinating programs and people were well educated about it and were happy to get them because they understood the importance both to an individual and also to a population now imagine you lived in that society and where now your whole society is much more resistant to this like existential threat of like this said virus and how devastating it would be because you would be able to react more quickly you would be able to have much more compliant population where everybody's like right we're all in it together let's not do stupid shit and let's Mm -hmm. make sure that we get this happening like i mean because if you didn't have that you'd have these problems where even when you finally get a a vaccine together you'd have people who are like well i'm not going to take that vaccine and then you'd have other issues of like well we don't even know how we're going to get it to you because we don't have good distribution to people who aren't super rich you're a poor you don't deserve the vaccine like you know whatever (laughs) bullshit thinking goes on i don't know but um And so imagine that scenario where then you have like half the population who are terrified of getting the vaccine because you don't have a good program of education and people aren't able to make good, well-informed consent. And there's no um, trust. in the- Right. And there's no trust. And so that would be a nightmare situation. I can't even imagine living I in something like that. It would be a fucking nightmare. Um, I, I would probably stay in my house for months on end and not be. Yeah. Not go out and not talk to anybody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, right. But our economy. Um, so, oh my God, tangent here. Yes. Like most of what I've heard recently when people are talking about like the economy and going back to work and stuff. Yeah. Is like it just boils down to like this bratty argument. All I hear anymore. My right to make money trumps your right to stay healthy. Yeah, that's fucked up. And I'm not like not like capital T Trump, like Trump card in poker game. Yeah, like, yeah. My right to make money supersedes your right not to get sick and the fucked up thing about that is exactly what i was getting on about it's so short-sighted because your your whole economy and your thing about making money is based on the idea that we all are alive right like we are healthy enough to walk to a store and spend a bunch of money like who's gonna buy your shit if they're all dead can I just talk? Okay, so yes, yes I mean you're right about we this. don't Damon do tangents and I were talking here. Talking about this the other day, right? No yeah. tangents. No allowed. tangents. We always let's stay right on topic. Let's talk about that. Yes, let's talk about that. Um, uh, so, uh, I I had to like order some groceries the other yes, day, and yeah. I was like, maybe I'll just get on board the fucking grocery order treat order wagon. And yes, like, before I moved away from. Uh, my house in Minneapolis and spent some time elsewhere. Uh, when I was still here before, I would I had a routine that was like like deadlocked. It was amazing. And it yeah. was because I had three jobs. And so I needed to be like super regimented about my time. Mm-hmm. And on Sundays is when I would just like get up and clean the house and organize my life and get ready for the coming week and all of these things. And I would be doing all of my loads of laundry and like stuff around the house. And so I would get up and I would order my groceries um, and 
we were a pilot uh, uh, community for like when Amazon was doing grocery delivery before they bought Whole Foods. Oh. And so we could get groceries delivered in two hours through Amazon. Um, and it wasn't like a huge variety of stuff. I'm not sure where they sourced their items from, like if they went and picked it up from grocery stores and delivered it or if they had like a warehouse somewhere or whatever the distribution system was, I'm unaware. But so you couldn't get a lot, but you could get your basics and staples and things like that. And um, it was all local food, like it would be picked up and delivered close to your house. So um, on Sundays, I would have my groceries delivered and you could pick a two hour time window and then it would just show up and it was really great. Well, I get back here now and because of everything that's happening and uh, COVID Landia, um, everybody now has some form of a delivery service. And so any grocery store, any like most restaurants do takeout and delivery. And then you go through and click through to find that the delivery is through like a third party, right? So yeah. I'm ordering food from one group of people who are assessing their surcharges to make it profitable enough for them to run a business and support employment. Right. Right. Yep. And so, you know, that that's like we all know grocery eating at a restaurant costs more than eating at a grocery store. Yep. So there's that. And then in order to get that food delivered without having to go pick it up, you have to get it delivered through another third party like Bite Squad or DoorDash or something like that. Or there's this other one in town now. Right. And uh, they also have surcharges so that they can run a business or be right. ventures or whatever you want to call it. Right. You know, your word choice. And so... um. <laughs> the the thing I ended up doing is I ordered from Lunds and Byerly's because Lunds and Byerly's um, have always been they're like the high end grocery store in the Twin Cities. Okay, and so um, they have like their produce game is unmatched. Like they probably hand select all of their produce. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Um, it's expensive. Uh -huh. There's carpet in the grocery stores. Uh -huh. Some of them have like really nice light fixtures and stuff. Going there is like an experience. It's not like, you know, Cub Foods on the lower end, which is like a, a, imminently affordable, but feels like you're walking through a swap meet uh -huh. or right. like, you know, uh, yeah. I don't know, like any other industrial warehouse. Like it just, it's not a pleasant experience. So you compare the two of them and they're obvious. Like if you, you would want to have the pretty experience, right? And so I get this and I don't usually shop at Lens because I'm like, oh, they're just like pandering, you know? Yeah. And it's like these yeah. inflated food prices and I, I generally don't shop there because of that. However, they have currently the most sane uh, grocery delivery system or grocery pickup system because they had it instituted as a service they provided yeah. That gets built into the surcharge they cost, you know, that's why an orange cost a buck twenty nine there and cost like twenty nine cents somewhere else. Right. Is because they like cater to like frou frou people. And right. so um I knew that the one by our house had a fancy delivery pickup dock. So you like drive up and they put your food in, in your car for you and they were doing that long before the COVID. Um so I just was like, I'll just do that. That's fine. And you can order because they have such a robust customer service perspective they have always had a website where you can order food and what you order is reflective of what they have in stock it's it's pretty accurate um so i just wanted to have a, the the key for me on this order was accuracy and yeah. not like convenience necessarily right except right. that it also had to be convenient because i didn't have time to leave the house because we're in the middle of remodeling stuff anyway uh -huh. long fucking story yes i didn't really want to deal with delivery grocery this time around that's but I fair had to. yeah and so as i was doing this like i was 
like I got the deliveries dropped in the car and it was like fine. And yeah, Lunds isn't that more expensive when you get the delivery option because they're already expensive to begin with because they offer a delivery option. And so I was thinking about like these other places that have these surcharges, more so groceries than restaurants. But it just really like jumped out at me and I felt like it was worth saying here. Yeah. Like, how much this stokes my fucking class hatred. Yeah. Because like the the funny thing is, is like I'm camped in the camp of people who can afford to like just call on a phone or like put a thing in a computer and a door sh- and your front door opens up and somebody's there to hand you the things right. that you want right. in like two hours. And I, di- I disagree with it. And I hate that what COVID has done is made it so that all of these so the the general level of service has degraded yep um so we're all paying the same or more for the same shit we were getting before for like if you're talking about restaurant delivery takeout food like now i'm just gonna have to take it back to my house where it's gonna be cold by the time i get it and so the quality of the food is degraded even though a lot of these restaurants in my neighborhood are places that i want to stay open and i really like their food so i don't give a shit but that happens so you're there's that like opportunity surcharge or that like you know coincidence or or like circumstantial surcharge so now you're paying more for food that's less good and then you have to pay some like vulturey third party person to like drive it around and the people doing that work are people who don't really have any other choice because they're not the ones like me sitting in my house fucking unnecessarily ordering grocery deliveries yeah right just so i don't have to be around other people and the around other people those other people you're talking about are the people doing the work right and I just, it just sucks. And so I like hate grocery delivery for this reason. I'm just going to be like extra careful when I go out and I'm just going to go to the fucking grocery stores because I hate that the solution to this fucking problem is, well, just have enough money to pay two extra surcharges to get the groceries delivered to you that you yes. could have gotten yourself before. Right. That's the solution? Just have more money? Yeah. No, what the fuck? Fucked up. Anyway. All right. End rant. <laughs> like uh it's um yeah and this is definitely where uh it's funny like i was this isn't exactly how i imagined us arriving at this but i was gonna make the connection (laughs) i was gonna make story of our lives (laughs) yeah i was gonna make the connection of um you know as we start to talk more about transhumanism and even get on to the topic of posthumanism in this series um we are gonna hark back to our designing dystopia series right Mm, um yeah because i think in the world of you know this is one of the issues of design that i think is important to think about um you know we're probably going to talk a lot about chesterton's fence a lot um when you're talking about transhumanism you're talking about the opportunity to anytime you're designing something you're basically taking um you're taking up the reins of uh direction and where things are going and like when you're trying to design something you're basically saying hey like i'm going to make decisions about how this object or this thing is going to exist in the world and Mm -hmm. transhumanism is very much about that it's about being like okay so we arrived here through this sort of unconscious or this sort of like non-intelligent um process of of natural selection which is to say that we're some emergent being um Mm -hmm. 
And so our existence is this emergent property of this sort of random chaos, so to speak. And now right. here we are. And now we're going to be like, okay, well, now we're going to use all of those tools and be self-evaluating and then try to better ourselves through our own decisions based on like what we see in our perception and using our minds to better our lot. And that is a process of design. And that's something that even though we kind of tongue-in-cheek talk about designing a dystopia, like it's a framework for talking about um, why, like, you know, like our, our take was like, Hey, how could you make it really bad with the idea that it's like, okay, well, you know, a corollary of that is like, there's maybe decisions here where you could make things better. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, by not doing those things or doing the opposite or being aware of making these choices leads down this path. And so, um, transhumanism is such a broad topic. Like we've talked about, um, hold on (coughs) dying of COVID. Die. Hopefully not. I shouldn't don't joke. die. No, I will be. Uh, I don't have it as far as I know. Um, <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Uh, well, um, we're almost there. Anyway, I'm pulling for you. I hope. Thank not. you. Yeah. Uh, so transhumanism, like it covers so many issues. Um, yeah. It talks about, uh, you know, it, it covers the whole issue of artificial intelligence and the concept of the technological singularity, which could be a whole a whole oh my God. podcast in its of itself yes. in and of itself um there's you know like we've been talking about like the biological issue i i think i'd be remiss not to mention that um cyberpunk gave way to other genres like uh biopunk which is the idea of way more heavily focused on um biotechnologies as a sort of dystopian like setting for science fiction um there are some really, really good uh, older books. Like there's, um, I think, uh, I think there's a book called Blood Music, which is oftentimes referred to as one of the early, um, early novels by Greg Bear. He uh, that was released in 1985, so that's like not much more, not much later than um, when Neuromancer was released. And so, uh, the idea of like biopunk being um, another subgenre of science fiction which is mm-hmm. so if you're into that kind of stuff which i am i it's always yeah just want to mention these these things to our listeners um or to you meg i expect you to read all of these books i <laughs> want to well get there um i'll uh yeah we'll <laughs> we'll talk about that um so uh yeah i mean i absolutely should like a lot of them are very good um some of them I are feel, yeah i feel like um go ahead never mind oh uh yeah well i need to send you a copy of um that ancillary justice i think it was called um okay ancillary justice which is the by ann lecky um yeah that was the science fiction author i mentioned like she's much more uh modern she wrote uh i think her first book um she well ancillary justice was published in 2013 so um, which was her debut novel, and um, it's it's a good one. It's actually a trilogy, so it's it's pretty fun. Um, How do you spell her name? A N N, and then last name is Lecky L E C K I E. Okay. Um, yeah, and I, I have a copy I'll send to you, or I'll, we'll figure it out. So yeah. Um. Anyway. Uh. Yeah. I'm putting it in the notes. Really, really amazing. Um, and it's really nice to have. Uh like science fiction early on was just like a lot of white dudes 
um, you know, because they had access to public, you know, to publishers. And so, um, yeah, early science fiction is just like very heavy, like middle aged white man centric, like ideas of how things should be or how things like what's good, what's bad, like, you know, that kind of stuff. Like Robert Heinlein is like kind of the worst in that regard. Um, like if you I his most famous novel, I think, was Stranger in a Strange Land, which is just this like. It's got a lot of really interesting ideas. And like when I was a kid, I didn't know any better. And I read it and I was like, oh, this is amazing. Like, you know, different ways of thinking about things. But when you get down to it, it's like it's his idea of what like a male utopian society would be. Right. And so it's just kind of a little bit gross when you kind of get down to it. Mm. Um, But yeah, but that's not to say that there's not maybe some good things in there. Um, Sure. And, you know, I'm not. I'm not an expert on the subject of like sexism and and male science fiction, so I just try to try to make myself aware of it. Um, Tread anyway, carefully. Yeah, uh, but um, ancillary justice or Anne Leckie is like a really awesome voice to be in. That like I I was very excited when um, when I was sent uh, a book by her for a um, I was in a like a what do you call it? like a Secret Santa and someone sent me her books and I was just like oh my god this is amazing um yeah it was really it was really cool because it's such a refreshing voice to have such like both a younger newer voice and also one that's not like basically some like staunchy old white professor dude who's like you know basically (laughs) masturbating into pages of a book about how great (laughs) everything's going to be in his special (laughs) space opera science fiction world um you know, his very like, you know, when where men are men and blah blah blah. You know, anyway. Um <clears throat> just the worst I love tropes. That, like yeah. you're so confident you're right about what that means that you don't even have to explain it. <laughs> That's exactly right. This logical tautology and everybody's like, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um I anyway, I her her writing is great. It, she has really great characters, her language is great. Um she her writing is also i would i don't know like it's a little bit early yet to say this but um my one of my other favorite science fiction authors is ian m banks and he wrote um just a massive amount of science fiction before he died like just the guy just turned out like just massive novels like my bookshelves are full of them and they're just like these tomes of like really really deep interesting um you know, worlds of science fiction. And, um, and I would say that, and like, he seems to be, I definitely would say like, she's got a good flavor of that. Like her writing is definitely in that world of like these massive space opera style, like, um, you know, very large in scope in idea and thoughts. Mm -hmm. It's, it's pretty fun. I really like it. So, um, anyway, uh, and I, yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder if I'm having an incomplete thought. Sorry, that's okay. That's really annoying for anybody. It happens. Yeah. yeah. All right. Continue. Um, and I I forget exactly where I was going with this, but uh, please let us know your thoughts on uh, what you think about transhumanism. We're gonna. I think we're definitely gonna have to like dig into it now that we've kind of given i i don't know if we've given much of an overview i think all we've really said is that um 
Prepare yourself. We're going to go down a rabbit hole for the next few weeks. Yeah, we're definitely going to try and get, um, like, pick out some particular points of it and talk more about it, I think, because I think there's really some pretty cool, um, pretty cool ramifications for where where we're going as a species and um, what that means. And uh, yeah, so. um, So, yeah, if you're a humanist, it's because you appreciate humanity and what that entails and if you probably would consider yourself a transhumanist you're someone who wants to enhance the experience of human beings because you're a humanist right yeah yeah um i it's i mean like you have to in order to be a transhumanist do you have to be a humanist first i think that um we're kind of getting into the world of like classifying philosophies yeah. And so I would argue that uh, transhumanism falls under the philosophy of humanism or is a branch of or a fork of humanism, right? Because it can't it can't exist without humanism in the like in the sort of logical sense of um you're saying I, that yeah, you're more than you're more you than can, humanism. So, you, you know, yeah. or you're transcendent of humanism or you're tran- you know, you're in a trans So trans this is like one of those things where it's like period. you can in order to be a transhumanist you must be a humanist it, it must be incumbent that you are a humanist as well but just being a humanist does not guarantee that you will become a transhumanist as an additional step right like in some ways you could argue that um you know if you're looking at sort of progressive versus um conservative right and you kind of if you take out the sort of theistic components of it and you're just talking about the practical mundane things conservatism would be sort of like the argument for a really particular humanist view, right? Like you're mm-hmm. basically saying, no, we want to be these humans and we're going to stay that way. And that's, we want to conserve that way of life and we want to conserve these philosophies of humanism. Um, because the thing about humanism, I think, is that it is this broad reaching um, thing that basically it's like we so as we'd kind of looked at the definition before of it being this philosophical and ethical stance that emphasizes the value of agency and human of the value and agency of human beings. Um, Yeah. So transhumanism doesn't do away with that. What it does is it says, great, let's enhance that. Let's use the science and the technology and the knowledge that we're learning to make our lives more better, elevate, you know, elevate ourselves out of, our existing human condition. And a lot of what we talked about, like, right. Like the good things are about treating disease and, um, you know, making, making life better for people, um, mm-hmm. is kind of the point. Uh, right. Um, so check this out then. I was thinking about what it is a pacemaker considered transhuman. Yes. Human transhuman. Are people I, yeah i mean i think i think so i think that's kind of the point like if you have a pacemaker then in, in some ways you're involved in the transhumanist movement you're participating in that by saying like i want to overcome my biology with this external technology okay so here's the thing transhumanism yeah. uh is a class of philosophies that seek to guide us toward a post-human condition yeah Transhumanism shares many elements of humanism, including respect for reason and science, commitment to progress, valuing human life or transhuman existence in this life. Transhumanism differs from humanism 
in recognizing and anticipating the radical alterations in the nature and possibilities of our lives resulting from various sciences and technologies. Right. And that was uh, Moore, a strategic philosopher. So the, um, Max Moore, M-O-R-E, mm-hmm. is a, a philosopher, and he created that particular doctrine. Okay. Um, and he called it the principles of extropy. Oh. And so that's the that was 1990 that laid the foundation of modern transhumanism by giving it that definition. Um, so I this is interesting because I was trying to figure out like, well, what is the difference between is a is a is a pacemaker considered prosthesis or is it considered a transhuman? But I think that I think the idea is to um, incorporate prosthetics as part of a transhuman movement right because you're saying that um you know in some ways it's a substitute for an existing mechanism right so maybe not maybe it's not transhuman it's it's sort of um you know if your heart is giving out or your heart muscle is no longer able to keep good time then you need a um you know you have a pacemaker in order to regulate your heart muscle um which is to take over a failing biological system, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which is what prosthetics do. Like you, mm-hmm. you know, you your hand, you no longer have a hand, so now you have a prosthetic hand. Um, right. So it takes over, and I guess the question becomes: um, maybe, maybe the idea in transhumanism is that when that prosthetic can do better than the original, then it is more transhuman. So, for instance, a pacemaker might not be because it's not it doesn't actually do a better job. It just does an adequate job. Um, whereas if the pacemaker were, say, able to regulate your heart in a way that gave you the ability to act more than, to act better or to exist better than a than a standard human, one without a pacemaker, where mm-hmm. it gave your heart the ability to, say, <coughs> react more quickly to changes in in exercise you know in effort or uh you know i don't know i mean i mean that's part of the debate i imagine um i think from my point of view anything that is a modification away from like the kind of your lot and what you ended up with in the the great you know crapshoot of biology um is 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 a kind of movement towards transhumanism because it's all about basically taking agency away from the randomness of the universe and being like, nope, I am a human being and I have agency and I am electing to continue to survive. And so I'm going to take over this situation and put this technology in my chest so that I can continue to exist. Um, is it feels like a transhuman philosophy approach in that way, because it's yeah. about, it's about gaining agency, um, of an individual. Yeah. Um, that otherwise you're just left to the whims of, you know, the biology of being like, oh, my heart failed. Now I get to die. But instead you're like, fuck that. I got this like this nifty little electronic box I'm going to shove in there and now I get to keep going. Yeah, I so. want all the gadgets. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want I want all of the gadgets and all of the lasers and all uh-huh. of the things that make my telomeres longer and all of the like stuff that buffs off all of the dead skin and... Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the things that my, make you see better and like, uh, yeah. I want my nanobots that allow me to hold my breath for, for 10 minutes or something. I want the, give me the nanobots. Yeah. Where's my nanobots? Um, 
the thing I love about nanobots is some of them have little donuts and they're like they have little wells that deliver things and then yes. some of them are things that just do something instead and don't mm -hmm. like do, they're not a delivery system. I just that's so cute. Yeah, no, they're pretty they're pretty amazing. Um I think we should maybe do you have a tip for living well in hell? It's been an hour and a half I do. so I feel like we need I to I do. Okay, if great. you are going to have any kind of surgical procedure. Yes. Make sure that you Research what sorts of devices are going to be used on or in you. Uh-huh. And research how much experience your doctor or surgeon has with that technology before you consent to participating in any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because um, medical devices are not regulated the same way that the FDA regulates medicines. And um, there's kind of a weird grandfathering loophole process for getting medical devices approved that don't require clinical trials. Mm -hmm. And um, as someone who cares about bioethics, this is like maybe another layer of mine that I'm considering becoming an advocate for or doing something about. But anyway, I'm horrified at the process for... Um, medical device approval because most of them are not rigorously tested or trained. People aren't trained to use them. Um, and they like maim people all the time. Oh God. Like, like, like all the time. And a lot of people come down with um, symptoms that don't have anything to do with the device that's been implanted because that device is like leaching a chemical or a metal into the bloodstream that is then causing like neurological deficits or like um, movement disorders or things that get diagnosed as something else like Parkinson's or dementia. And it's like, oh, nope, it's just your hip replacement because it's leaching like a hundred times the level of cadmium metal into your bloodstream that you can be exposed to before you start to have neurological disorders. Oh. Like, yeah, so much crazy shit. Um, and the device companies like Medtronic and Johnson & Johnson and all these companies that develop all kinds of things to stick in your body and leave there um, are way more willing to defend their actions in court after the fact than they are to pay up front for the... For, to actually just not be shitbags is what it comes down to. Um, yeah, and I mean... not knowingly create something that's going to, to trash people's health. So... Um, that's my that's my like current events tip for living well in hell. It's fucking hellish out there. Don't um, don't agree to anything without researching it because a lot of the doctors don't have any idea that these medical devices actually cause problems because the only reporting structure that there is is if you've received one of them, you can report a complaint to the FDA and then the FDA maybe thinks about it. But they certainly don't send like an APB out to all the doctors like, hey, more and more people keep having problems with these hip replacement sockets or like more and more people are having problems with these like um, sterilization methods or like whatever. And they're, the feedback loop is broken and it's a mess. So just protect yourself out there, kids. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Oh, man. I, I really hate that we have a society where um, generally speaking – uh, asking for forgiveness is better than asking for permission. Yeah. 
there's a lot of like so much money to be made, like so much more money than you will ever need to be made doing unethical things that you can always spend the tiny portion of money it will take after the fact to defend yourself against doing the unethical thing in the first place. But just don't be that dick. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't really have a more salient argument than that. Like, just why would you want to cause misery to other people? It's already bad enough. That's the whole point. Right. Anyway. Yeah. Research your devices and your doctors. (laughs) Like, who are massage therapists? Like, listen, I work with a lot of doctors and not all of those people got A's in med school. Right. (laughs) Protect yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Um. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, as always, um, please do let us know what you think. Uh, as I mentioned before, you can email us, Dana at fcbm.io. Our executive assistant, Dana, will take care of you. Um, you can also go to our webs- website, which is fcbm.io, um, and you can basically have a good time. Do whatever you want. Uh, also, wear a mask. We're almost there. Like, really... <laughs> Do whatever you want as this, long as what you want is wearing a mask and washing your hands just, and yeah. staying away from other people. Yeah, like if you're if you're falling in the camp of like not wearing a mask, like please, like we're almost there. Like you know, just tough it out because um, we're almost there. Like we're getting there. So anyway, uh, wash your hands. Don't be a dick. <laughs> um, I have to imagine most people who listen to this are are fairly pro science and generally wearing masks and not being assholes, but. Who That's knows? because they're all stuck inside their houses and they've eliminated every other possible thing to do except for listen to us. But, yes, like, right. So we know they're at home. Right. Yeah. Keeping to themselves or they wouldn't be listening to this. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, anyway, thank you everybody for listening. Bye. <laughs>